Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another session of SECPA. SECPA. During this time of social and physical distancing, SECPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on the issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continued support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Today, we have Dr. Paul Ferry from Calgary joining us on the topic of what did the 2020 US election results tell us about American voters? Dr. Paul Ferry has a PhD in political science from the University of Calgary, focusing on voter behavior. He has taught politics at the University of Calgary since 2010 and ran the Global Mail election forecast in 2015. He is a senior research associate at the University of Calgary. Thanks for joining us today, Paul, and we look forward to your talk. Yeah, I mean, I mean, thanks so much for having me back. It's not quite the same as coming down to the, the Legion and, and having some lunch in between uh, the talking questions, but, but we'll do our best uh, anyways. So, um, yeah, so I was asked today to talk about the U.S. election results. We did leave it a couple of weeks after the uh, actual election because we figured it might take a little bit of time to for the results to come in. And, and obviously, there's still a little bit of uh, drama about exactly the details of the results to come. But but we'll sort of walk through some of the some of the highlights, some of the interesting things, and then hopefully have a good discussion uh, at the end. If we can go to the, the next slide. That's me, that's, a, that's, that's how you spell my name. Uh, you can find me uh, um, on Twitter there at, at, uh, at PolySci. It's, uh, I guess, uh, especially during the pandemic, my main hobby, I think, uh, at, at this point, uh, also led me to accidentally revive uh, a 19th century beverage, if you wanna, if you wanna Google that. Uh, it's a little bit of fun. But uh, on the next slide, <clears throat> we have uh, sort of the agenda um, that, that I've set out uh, for us to think about together. Uh, today. So first, let's just think about the question of what changed. Obviously, the, um, with, with a few details to come, the president uh, will change, but that's not the only thing that really changed in the results. So let's look at were, were they big changes or small changes? Is everything different now than it was before? Or did things just go back to how it was in, in 2012? So, so a few interesting things to point out there. Then let's walk through some of the actually 56 contests. So as much as the US presidential election seems like one big um, one big contest is actually uh, 56 small to very large contests as well. So, so, so we'll go through what some of them mean. We'll go through this idea of the of the red mirage, which people were talking about uh, in the run up to the election, which definitely happened. Which is just kind of the question of why does it seem like as time goes on, um, the lead for Biden is growing over time. Is that indicative of anything unusual or? strange or is it actually something um, more explainable and I mean not to spoil the fun but it is actually just something uh, pretty explainable then the fourth section this is maybe maybe just directed specifically at the president but can Trump uh, still win uh, the election he, he certainly seems to be holding out hope I mean the short answer is no but we'll go through what some of the the details are there and then what's next like is there anything left to do in this election process uh, which is just a, sort of an excuse for me to walk through uh, some of the rules of the electoral college which is coming up I guess in in almost a month so hopefully that sounds like a, a good agenda I mean if it doesn't it's sort of, it's sort of too late at this point so um, First thing, so on the next slide, we can see here the overall vote totals, which I mean is not a, an amazingly thrilling slide here, but we can see like quite a bit is different from 2016 to 2020. The, the asterisk is there just because that's the results as of last night. 
probably something like two to six million votes are still, are still waiting to be counted. They, they like to take their time, I suppose. But you can see here, the first thing that changed was both Clinton in, in, uh, slash Biden, like the Democratic candidates, and Trump uh, have picked up like enormous numbers of votes compared to last time. Um, Clinton actually, if you remember, won the, the popular vote, um, 66 million almost votes to Trump's 63 million. But Biden, compared to Hillary Clinton, picked up, what is it, 15 million, I think, if I'm doing my mental math correctly. And Trump even picked up another almost 11 million. And I mean, those numbers will go up a little bit more. So, so overall, uh, I mean, there's two messages there, I guess. One is Trump's vote share, as much as he lost this time, actually increased compared to uh, 2016. Um, the percentage will go down over time, but it, it, it'll be a little bit bigger probably than the 46.1% that he got in 2016. Whereas Biden definitely has improved on, on Clinton's margins uh, and vote shares by about three, maybe even three and a half percent by the time uh, everything is counted. But the other big number then to notice, obviously, uh, is just the, just the sheer number of votes. So if we go to the next slide, we can see US presidential voter turnout uh, over time. So there's a couple of different ways to calculate this, and, and it's actually quite interesting, um, one of the differences. So here I, I used what they call voting eligible population. Sometimes you'll see the numbers calculated a little bit differently you, using voting age population. But, it, but if, you, if you pay attention to US politics, you'll know that in various states they have all of these different um, ways to be excluded from voting whether it's uh, people who have uh, felony convictions or or all sorts of really other um, um, types of barriers that are presented, including things as, as simple as voter registration, which is quite different from in Canada. Voter registration is, is a very simple process here. You essentially just get on the list as, as, a, as an eligible voter, whereas in the US it can often be quite a bit more complicated. But nonetheless, you can see over time even between about 1920 and until 2016, voter turnout as a percentage of this voting eligible population is, is around 50, 55% most of the time, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less, but, it, but it's, it's, it's overall pretty consistent. But you can see in 2020, there was a, a pretty big jump from 59% to 68%. And that'll actually go up over time as well. It might be 69, maybe even 70% if they, if they uh, if they're a little bit lucky, but that'll be the, the biggest turnout um, since 1900, at least as a percentage of voting eligible population. So if, if we're answering the question of what do the American election results tell us about American voters, it's that they were very interested, obviously, in this election and very motivated uh, to turn out to vote. There was some concern that, um, obviously, with the COVID, that it might drive down voter participation in some areas, but that definitely seems to be the opposite. It's, it seems to be uh, more more um, more popular than ever to, to turn out to vote. Um, the, the other fun thing before we uh, move on to some of the exit polling results uh, is is the electoral college shifts. If there's if there's one sort of amusing irony, I think of this election is that Trump claiming his large, massive popular or electoral vote. A victory compared uh, compared to Hillary Clinton, he won 306 to 232, and if ever, uh, with an asterisk there, but uh, we'll talk about that at the very end. Uh, but then Biden will essentially win by exactly the same margin, so he, he'll have won 306 electoral votes if everything goes approximately as normal to Trump's uh, 232. So there were some shifts. Ultimately, it was five states that made the difference, 
uh, between 2020 and 2016. But another way to look at what changed um, is to look at exit poll results. Um, so obviously, it's the best that we can do right now. There'll be some better studies done later by political scientists in the US. But exit polls, which are taken on election day, are, are, we, are something that we can compare 2020 to 2016. So, so a question that, that I want to address first, uh, that I'll just ask myself, um, is, is how, do, how on earth do you conduct an exit poll during a pandemic? So it, it is usually conducted in two or three stages already to take into account the fact that people will vote early, people um, are sometimes harder to reach in certain areas for exit polls. So they did do the same methodology again, where they contacted the many, many more early voters to try and get a, a sense of uh, what happened. So if, if we go to the next slide, we can start to see some of these results. So I just, I just highlighted a couple of different breakdowns of voters so we can see where some of these shifts occurred. So if you look at gender, for instance, you can see here that um, Trump won uh, among men in 2016 by about 11 percentage points, um, but only one, only one by about eight percentage points here among men in 2020, whereas Clinton won among women about 13% gap there between the two of them, and it was now a 15% gap um, for Biden in 2020. These are not very large uh, shifts, um, but, but they are, it's sort of indicative of the fact that it wasn't really necessarily a big change uh, in terms of, of gendered voting, just just some small two or three percentage point shifts uh, towards uh, Biden this time compared to Clinton in, in 2016. So then on the next slide, we can see whether or not uh, it was young voters who made the difference this time. So uh, I'll be very generous to myself here and put myself still in the young voter category of 18 to 44, which I always like to do. Um, but you can see here in 2016, um, Clinton won by about 14 percentage points uh, among younger voters, whereas it was it was still like 14 percentage points in in 2020 as well. Uh, the bigger shifts, even though it was still relatively small, was actually among the sort of older voters, 44 plus. Not it was pretty even once you get beyond 44, but there was a two or three percentage point shift uh, towards Biden uh, this time compared to uh, Clinton. So again, it's a similar story to the gender um, tables, where it's not one group swinging heavily towards Biden. It's actually just a, a lot of small changes. Obviously, on the, then on the next slide, which, which uh, shows race, which is one of the big determining factors of vote choice in the US, it's pretty much exactly the same. I wouldn't make too much of any of the small changes of one or two percentage points here. That can just be the margin of error from the polling. But you can see here among white voters, uh, 2020 should say Biden versus Trump there. That was just me being lazy, copying and pasting. But um, there were small shifts among most of the groups towards um, towards Biden. Similar results for some of the groups. Not a lot to really say there, except just to kind of reaffirm, if you think that this election was about changing demographics and, and, and certain groups voting more for Biden more enthusiastically, it wasn't really. It was just sort of all of these small shifts for gender, age and race. Uh, that we can see kind of happening uh, across all uh, groups. But if we want to highlight the big thing that changed other than everyone changing their minds a little bit, um, the biggest difference I would say comes actually from the next slide, uh, which is about sort of favor favorable opinions for, for the candidates. Um, that in 2016, people didn't really like um, 
either candidate, quite quite a lot, large number, 18% like neither candidate, which is very high historically. Usually it's, it's lower uh, than that in most exit polls. Whereas in 2020, that really dropped now down to a, a more normal uh, 3% uh, who didn't like either candidate. So people liked Biden more than they liked Clinton in 2020, but also people liked Trump more than they liked Trump in 2016. So, so it's a, a shift for both, um, uh, both of the candidates. There's still this kind of, I, I find quite personally, uh, challenging group of these two or 3% of voters who, who actually like both of the uh, candidates equally, which, which, which I think is just mystifying to me personally, I suppose. But nonetheless, what this election was different in, in 2020, at least among the, the exit polls, was that people liked one of the candidates this time rather than disliking both of them, at least a, a large chunk. So it was one of the bigger shifts uh, that we can notice um, that we can notice there. But of course, voter choice is very difficult There's to, to try and rationalize. So sometimes we have this idea in our heads that voters are these rational, thinking, considerate, um, people who read all of the platforms and then decide who to vote for based on a, a consideration of that. But if we go to the next slide, we can see my favorite little anecdote. And of course, anecdotes are not um, the only explanation here, but this is a tweet from a Miami, Miami Herald, I think reporter. He said, I'll just read this out, but you can read it yourself as well. I just spoke to 28 year old Miami and Alex Garcia. He said he woke up today thinking he was gonna vote for Trump, but he changed his mind at the voting booth. He ended up picking Biden to go back to normal. I just want my Instagram to be about me again and how good I look. And you can see, like, it's one of the thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of examples that we could find of a vote choice isn't about a considered, necessarily a considered reaction to Trump and Biden. It can often be all of these very individualized stories that an election isn't one contest. It's not even the 50 some odd contests I'll talk about in a bit. It's, you know, millions of contests for the attention and, and devotion of uh, of voters. So, I mean, as much as polls can help us understand what goes on at a kind of big level, there's all these micro stories as well that we, we, we will never understand, I, I suppose. So then the next uh, point I'd like to make about um, the election is actually, so the next slide you can see that it's really 56 separate contests most of them first past the post. So again, if you remember uh, 2016, uh, we will remember the fact that Hillary Clinton won the more popular vote by quite a large margin, two percentage points. Like it's not, it wasn't razor thin, um, but she still lost. And it's because they have the electoral college. We'll go through the rules in a second uh, of that, but it's really 56 very different uh, contests that you're all fighting. And, and what do I mean by 56? You think, why, why isn't it 50 or maybe 51? So it's 48 contests in, in 48 of the states, DC has its own contest. Then Nebraska and Maine uh, split up their contest to have a statewide contest and also contests in their congressional districts for the electoral college. So it's really all of these different uh, contests. And, and sometimes people say that this is a good thing because it helps to um, make smaller states more important than they might otherwise be. But what it, it doesn't, it does that maybe very marginally, but the real effect that it has is it makes close contests incredibly important. So rather than Florida being a close contest where maybe you win by a million or lose by a million votes, you know, or half a million votes or whatever it is, or a hundred thousand votes, you actually win all or none of the, of the state's electoral college votes. So winning by one vote is much more than enough to, to win all of the contests. So you remember 2000 Bush v. Gore, what was it? Uh, Bush defeated Gore by 537 votes, I think it was. 
uh, in 2000, but won 100% of the electoral college votes. So it's really all of these micro contests. So the next slide, we can just see then the list of five states that changed uh, in, in 2020. Of course, they have, we still have to certify the votes, but we're just going to assume that this is fine. So three of the states were states that were big surprises that went to um, that went to Trump rather than Clinton last time. So Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. So these are sort of the upper Northeast states. Uh, more traditionally um, Democrat, Democratic held states rather than Republican states. But, but Biden winning these back was a big part of his uh, of his victory, and certainly he's originally from Scranton, Pennsylvania, so would have a lot of uh, experience dealing with with these sorts of states. But the two sort of stretch goal states maybe were Arizona uh, and Georgia, and a lot of this story was was a story that you can see across the country of um, just just relatively large, but it's still like four or five percentage point shifts in suburban areas, especially. So not so much rural areas, not so much the super urban areas like Philadelphia and so on. It was the shifts in the, um, in, in the suburban areas. And it's why, personally, at least I think, uh, if you look at the some of the Trump campaign's complaints about the election results, they say, oh, it's Philadelphia is the problem, it's Milwaukee is the problem. It's actually, if the election was fraudulently fixed in these areas, which, it, which it, I, I will reemphasize, it was not, um, they didn't do a very good job of fixing it because the votes didn't shift that much compared to last time. It was in the suburban areas around these cities that especially explains Arizona and and uh, Georgia's shifts. Pennsylvania, honestly, as well. So on the next slide, we can see even some of the local, like relatively hyper-local issues helped out. So, I mean, uh, lots of interesting things, and I think not nearly enough time to explain a lot of this, but... Um, the Navajo Nation voters uh, in, I guess, northeast Arizona really made a big push to drive up turnout um, in, in uh, amongst uh, their, their uh, the people who live in Navajo Nation. Uh, and they did they did a very good job of this. They, they do lean Democratic quite heavily, uh, certainly. And they, they, they increased the margin for the Democrats from 9,000 to 12,000 in Navajo County, which is not exactly the same thing as Navajo Nation. But once we get the more detailed results, we can see the shifts there. But that was one of the big reasons why Arizona, say, uh, shifted as well, was just driving up voter turnout in, in, in this area. So it, again, it's not this big national contest. It's actually all of these sort of um, pretty hyper-local contests. <clears throat> Some other stories that we can see on, on on the next slide. So the Hispanic vote is something that people have talked a lot about. This is actually one of the brighter spots for the um, for the Trump campaign. The reason that Florida basically didn't flip to to Biden was because of increased voter turnout among some some Hispanic communities um, in South Florida. Uh, but Trump didn't win those areas, but he drove up his margins enough to keep Florida uh, safe enough. Also, a lot of Texas border counties were um, swung towards Trump, at least somewhat. Um, but the, the, the big warning here is that the H Hispanic voters as a group is not necessarily a very useful classification. It's a very diverse population amongst even just the Hispanic population themselves. So it's hard to kind of lump them all together. There were definitely some Hispanic areas that also swung um, towards Biden. So, I mean, some of the early explanations for this are just uh, some targeting that the Trump campaign did, especially among Hispanic evangelical populations, to increase um, support for Trump uh, there. Suburban areas, as I mentioned before, were um, the big uh, big victory for Biden. Like, if anything won it for Biden, it was it was suburban areas. Um, the big cities were very static. 
we're still waiting for New York City to come in, so it's hard to say what happened there. But like Detroit, Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, all of the Los Angeles, the then the classic Democratic held cities were were very similar to 2016. It was the areas outside of that that were um, uh, that were different. And the other story here is around some of the shifting counties. So just looking at my notes, what is it? 206 uh, counties uh, out of about 3,000 nationwide shifted from Obama to Trump. So then there, there was a big question of, well, is it going to shift back to be more like the Obama coalition? Or is it going to represent a, a shift because of Trump? And it seems like the shift because of Trump is sort of the winning explanation right now. Because of the 206 Obama to Trump counties, Trump still won 176 of them. So he held on to most of the shifts that occurred um, in in 2016. Uh, Biden did pick up 59 Trump counties, a lot more of these sort of suburban counties. So we're seeing a different kind of politics in 2020 than we saw maybe in 2008 or, or, or 2012. So in, in, in on the next slide, we can see this this idea of the of the red mirage. So this is just the the question of is there anything weird about the fact that the votes seem to be shifting more towards Biden um, as time goes on? Are, are they counting them in a strange order? And essentially, the order that they're counting them in isn't random. So, I mean, don't think of the votes as just being put into a big pot and then they're just randomly drawing out one ballot and one ballot and one ballot and it's shifting over time because that would be quite suspicious. I mean, some CEOs have even said, why is this happening? But I mean, I'll explain in a second. It's really the big difference this year is one, because of COVID primarily, huge numbers of voters voted in advance. Some states went to all mail-in ballots. The way people are voting, so not who they vote for, but just the method that they use to vote, is very different in 2020 uh, compared to, to every other election that's gone before. And you could see the same patterns in, in the British Columbia provincial election that just happened. The NDP actually did a little bit better with the early votes than with the later votes. So they, they actually picked up a couple of seats when they when they counted all of the votes, ultimately. Um, so on the next slide, you can actually see a poll that came out on October 9th. Um, so that warning us that this is going to happen. So if you see here, in person on election day voters, the poll was 63 for Trump, 31 for Biden. But for people who voted by mail, it was 69 for Biden, 27 for Trump. And people who were going to vote in person before election day it was still 55 for Biden. 40 for Trump. And these are huge, very large margins that we don't really see um, as being too important in most elections. But because so such a large number of people were voting early or in person early or by mail, and they were heavily towards Biden, and most states, though not every state, most states count these later on, it, it sort of definitely foretold this idea that um, that the votes would change as time went on. And I mean, we can see here on the next slide like why this would happen. Here's just a headline I'll read out from October the 1st. Almost every single one of Trump's debate claims about mail-in voting was wrong. So, I mean, if you have a candidate who is spending the, a lot of the election telling people that mail-in ballot is fraudulent and you shouldn't vote there because they'll, they'll get rid of your votes and so all sorts of things he was making up, it's no surprise that there would be a huge partisan difference between early voters and later voters. So essentially a very unusual um, campaign strategy for Trump to pursue if he was trying to win legitimately, was trying to like cast aspersions on one type of popular voting uh, that people would um, pursue. So the next slide introduces my, the, my second last question, which is just this question that I've heard from people about can Trump still win? 
And, and the answer is essentially no with an asterisk. Obviously, it's 2020, and we never know what's going to happen. And it's a wild year. So with that aside, essentially, there's no realistic path, I guess, for, for, for Trump to win at this point. They're trying a lot of things. What are they trying? They're trying vote certification delays. So a lot, most of the elections are run by the, the local county governments who report the results back to the states. So there's a lot of drama in the last few days about Wayne County, Michigan. Will the board of commissioners, I think they're called in Wayne County, Michigan, certify or not certify the results? They didn't, they, they failed to certify them, then they certified them, but then one of the people who Trump personally called last night, it turns out, um, wrote a letter saying she wishes to retract her certification. So, I mean, it, they're trying all of these things. They would have to win basically four states worth of uh, challenges. They're losing most of their challenges. Um, judges are throwing out most of them immediately. So it's a really, it's a very thin um, path to, I, I don't know, we even have call, I call it victory, but there, like, there's not, there's no realistic story here where Trump ends up uh, winning. They're gonna try recounts, which is the usual way, which is fine. I mean, it's, it's very common to ask for recounts, but Biden's ahead by 10, 20, 30, 40,000 votes in these states. And it's hard to overturn that kind of margin. If it was less than a thousand, you'd say, okay, we've seen contests with less than a thousand be flipped on a on a recount. So his last hope then is basically the electoral college, which on the next slide we can see is essentially the, the what's next. So the electoral college is, is an actual event that has to happen. So the electoral college is not, it's an automatic process where you get the electoral votes. They actually have to be uh, voted on. So on the next slide, just a very quick rundown. I mean, the, the details are even uh, relatively straightforward, but the state states get assigned a number of electoral votes, which is equal to the number of representatives they have in the House, plus the number of senators that they have, which is always two, except for DC, which just gets three. We can set that aside for a moment. And it's usually winner takes all. So it, it slightly overweights smaller states, somewhat underrepresents uh, the larger states. But again, it's not an automatic process. So on the next slide, we can see a Massachusetts ballot from 2016. So you'll see here, like, what does it say that you're voting for? You're not voting for Clinton and Kane here or Trump and Pence. You're voting for electors of president and vice president. So you're actually voting for these electors. So who are you voting for really? Uh, the next slide is a, a sample from 2016 in Montana. If you, voted, if you voted for Trump and Pence, say, in Montana, you weren't actually voting for him or the, the, the two of them. You were voting for Thelma Baker, Nancy Balance, and Dennis Scranton. And they were going to go to the state house a couple of weeks after the election to cast their electoral college votes. So it's essentially <clears throat> the last hope, I guess, for, for Trump here. So the next slide points out like what, what's happening next. So November 3rd was voting day. November 3rd to the de December 14th is basically the counting time uh, for the states. December the 14th, the electoral college actually meets. So it's not one place. It's actually like each of the states has their own little meeting. And then they have to send those votes into Congress. And then on January 6th, a joint session of Congress basically declares the results as official and finalized. So he has to figure out how to maneuver this system before January 6th. And most states now have laws that electors can't become faithless electors. They can't uh, vote however they want. There are some states where you can though. So they're gonna have to hope to change the minds of some electoral college members. And who are these people in New York state? 
Hillary Clinton is one. She's probably not that convincible. In Georgia, um, Stacey Abrams, the hero of Georgia, heroine of Georgia, um, is one of them as well. She's not going to change her mind. So just to kind of sum up my my thoughts here, then, what do these election results tell us about U.S. voters? High levels of motivation among voters, huge voter turnout compared, like, since 1900, the biggest vote percentage of voters. Um, not a lot of individual level shifts. It's not like young people or women or anything one shifted towards uh, um, Biden. It was just small shifts among lots of different groups. But the, a big difference, again, being the fact that opinions about the two candidates were kind of more divided. They, people didn't hate both of them. They liked one. They didn't like the other. Um, it's not a shift back to Obama times of the coalition that he built to win two elections. It's actually a, a changing coalition with more suburban voters supporting the um, the Democrats. Uh, and and uh, the final point, I guess, uh, is just that there's not a lot of um, realistic possibility of victory uh, for Trump at this point. Um, he's essentially just delaying uh, the inevitable um, it's maybe one of the stages of grief, I'm not sure. Um, but the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is he doing this? So is it to is it to win? I mean, maybe. I mean, maybe he's thinking you, you might as well try um, to win. But the thing that, uh, I'm going to take a sip of water, it'll be dramatic because I'll delay the point here. But the, the thing that worries me most is this poll. It's, they asked voters after the election, do you think that elections in the US are free and fair? So before the election, 30% of Republicans said, no, I don't think they're free and fair in America. After the election, that number has been driven up to 70%. It doubled. Democrats before the election said, 52% said, yeah, we agree, they're free and fair. Now, 90% of Democrats think that the election in the U.S. is free and fair. So really, the longer that this kind of delaying process goes on, the more I worry about uh, about that sort of number. So I guess with, with that, we've... Uh, reach the end of the, the first part of this uh, discussion. And I think I'd be happy to, to take any questions. Thanks very much, Paul. Wonderful. Um, we've got um, some questions lined up, so I'll just jump right in. Our first question comes from Mark Goodall. What do you think the term socialism means to the average American? Yeah, I, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a good question that I don't I don't necessarily have a specific answer for, but definitely the idea that um, socialism, which I think in the U.S. and I mean even in Canada, in 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 parlance, has become blended with communism essentially at this point, um, is um, like the idea of of Joe Biden being a, a socialist is is definitely a a puzzling one. He's definitely been a, a centrist in any. Um, in any common sense sort of evaluation of, of, of his career. Maybe he's a bit more center left these days, but that's definitely nowhere particularly close to socialism. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of, of, of what socialism uh, actually is in, in it, uh, around the world. But I would say in, in the US, it's almost seen as like a dirty word where if you label someone as a socialist that you can say, oh, they're completely unreasonable. I mean, Congress Congresswoman, uh, Ocasio-Cortez from New York, um, AOC, um, definitely self-identifies as a socialist and, and essentially would be Bernie Sanders as well. But I mean, these people are the minority, the huge minority of the, de the Democratic Party at this point. Um, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. 
Is there a further breakdown in the 44 plus group? Specifically, how did the 60 plus voters vote? Um, yeah, no, I, I can look this up here. I have it open, which is nice. Yeah, so um, let's see, 65 or older. So essentially, as you get older, you were a, a little bit more likely to, to vote for Trump rather than Biden. So just to split it up here, so 18 to 29, Biden won those voters 60 to 36. Compare that to 65 or older, where Trump won 52 uh, to 47. So, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty close uh, split there. But basically, every time, every 15 years, it looks like Biden loses about three or four percentage points and Trump will gain three or four percentage points. Um. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Obviously, the two Senate seats left to be decided in Georgia is crucial to Biden's ability to get things done. What are your thoughts on what will happen if he does not control the Senate? Yeah, so, so I mean, it will certainly make the more ambitious plans that, uh, that he campaigned on much more difficult. There were, there were, the best example is probably there, there was some talk about um, what they call, quote unquote, packing the court, where it's just this idea of expanding the number of Supreme Court justices on the Supreme Court, which has which used to happen quite regularly in the 19th century. Haven't done it uh, much uh, since then, but there would be no way, for instance, uh, to, to do that if um, the Democrats don't win both Georgia seats. But of course, and the other thing to, to keep in mind is that even if they do win both Georgia seats, so then that's a 50-50 Senate. So then, then the tie-breaking rule is that the vice president uh, gets to be the tiebreaker. So once um, once Kamala Harris is sworn in, she gets to be the, the tiebreaker. But it, the US has much less party discipline than we have in Canada. So in, in the Canadian parliament, you, you could expect almost 100% of the time, like 99.99, lots of nines, uh, percent of the time, MPs will vote with their party, but senators and members of the House even will definitely deviate from their party, thinking of, say, Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, um, will, will vote with the Republicans some of the time. Um, you also get sometimes Susan Collins or even Mitt Romney, um, Republican senators who might vote with the Democrats. So just because it's 50-50 plus a tiebreaker, it still wouldn't be a free range for the Democrats to try to get everything that they wanted done. They would need to have 55, 57, 60 seats to, to, to really have hope of um, doing any, everything that they wanted. Um, next question comes from Terry Shillington. Biden sees himself as a unity candidate. That would seem to be virtually impossible, impossible given America's realities. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I think I would agree with both parts of the statement. So if you, I don't know if you if you paid a, a lot of attention, and I mean, <laughs> uh, I paid too much attention, I would say to this election, it's just a personal failing. But you watch some of the Biden ads at the end of the um, campaign, he was basically running as Ronald Reagan, like it was all about um, not about not his philosophy or his ideology, but just like this America can be, you know, it can be morning again in America, this sort of thing. Um, uh, like a very American, but but not nationalistic kind of message uh, that that he was uh, running on. But I would say for both the Democrats and the Republicans, it's, it's such a big chasm. If you think of the um, 
like even think of just this, this the last poll that I read out about people accepting the election results as free and fair. It's such a big difference right now between Democrats and Republicans. And it's why I think that Trump's refusal essentially at this point to concede the result is, 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 is relatively dangerous. So not from a legal perspective, there's no legal requirement to uh, concede the election. If you don't concede the election, you still lose. Like it's not, it's not, doesn't make the other person automatically win. But the danger is so this idea of loser's consent. Like you basically need the <laughs> you need the the losing side of an election to say, you know, I, I recognize the result, I congratulate my opponent. Not because they have to be happy. It's just because they have to tell their supporters, yes, like this is this is why we do democracy is to pick somebody to be in an office and I recognize that this person is uh, in office. Uh, now and I think I think missing out on that will make it even more difficult for Biden to be a, um, a unifying president. As much as he'll even try his best, it, uh, if the other side doesn't want to cooperate, you can't unify uh, in that case. So, so I mean, it's 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 what stresses me out, I guess, most about about Trump's uh, continued uh, fights. And I mean, if he can keep it up for as long as he wants, years and years, you can say I am the aggrieved uh, president. Um, of the United States. So, Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. Is it possible that an increase in federal voting laws may direct state electoral bodies to a less limiting process to register qualified voters and gerrymandering? Okay, that's a, that's a couple of questions all at once. Yeah. Um, um, so, so states are, so gerrymandering is this idea that you can redraw um, congressional districts, at least in this case, electoral districts in Canada, but congressional districts to try and protect certain members or to make it more possible for your party to win or lose. Lots of stuff around that. I mean, the, uh, my, my favorite fact I always share is, is why is it called gerrymandering? It's because there was a governor of Massachusetts, Elbridge Gerry, not Jerry, but we now say Jerry, um, who drew a district that looked like a salamander. So they called it Jerry's Mander. So Gary's Mander, gerrymander. That's how we get gerrymandering. Anyways, separate point. But, so there's very limited control, or like there's very limited power for the for the federal national government in the U.S. to to um, intervene in this process. The states really um, uh, have all the power there, and especially around voter registration, it really is a, a state responsibility to run. Um, run these sorts of things. So, I mean, essentially, maybe the best that they could do is some of the things that they do with highway funding and drinking ages in the US, where they, they tie federal highway funding to some state changes. So could they do this sort of thing, potentially? But there's not like a hammer that the, the federal government can use to, to, to crack down on this sort of thing. Okay. Um, oops, sorry, there was just a jumping questions. Yeah, there we go. Beth Mandel is our next question. How do you think this election may impact the election of 2024? And do you think Trump might win in 2024? <laughs> well, so, so I'd say my first thought is Trump will at least suggest that he's going to run all the way through to like the end of 2023 or beginning of 2024. Whether he does or not, you know, it's hard to predict four years in, in the future. But I, I would say he, he will definitely position himself to run. And if he doesn't run... Uh, certainly someone carrying the the Trump um, banner will uh, run, whether it's literally a, a Trump family member or at least a, um, a politician who uh, adheres to the, the, the Trump 
uh, philosophy. Um, but in terms of 2024, there's a couple of, of open questions. I mean, one honestly is is whether Joe Biden will himself even even run again. Like he will be the the oldest sworn in, newly sworn in president uh, ever. Uh, what is it? He's 78, I think now. Um, which I mean, it would be a normal age for people to retire from the Senate, even at, at this point, 82, 83, whatever he'll be uh, at the end of the next term. So there is the open question of will he run again, um, which which would open up either Kamala Harris to be a nominee, but it would definitely be an open contest and people would run against Kamala Harris. They wouldn't run against Joe Biden if he was the sitting president in any serious way. But I, I do think it sets up the 2024 Republican nomination as being a really interesting thing where it will be a battle now between kind of the older style conservative but not necessarily like super populist super nationalist approach of of trump kind of a a normal boring conservative kind of candidate like a like a mitt romney like maybe a john Kasich from ohio someone from this kind of area will run uh to try and reclaim the old style republican party maybe even ronald reagan type um but um, there will definitely be one or one one to twenty candidates running to to uh, restore the Trump uh, candidacy, whether it's Trump himself or or some some designate. Our next question goes from Leona Jacobs, and it's regarding one of your slides. So I'm just putting that slide back up. Sure. Um, my recollection of your age breakdown chart is that. The 18-44 age category preferred Trump. If correct, why did you think so? Why do you think so? Well, yes. Yeah, so, so the 18-44 category was definitely pro-Clinton or Biden. Um, so in 2016, Clinton won the younger group here, 53 to 39. In uh, 2020, Biden won it 56 to, to 42. Um, so it was definitely... It will have been a long time since the Republicans won the, the the younger age group. Probably when Reagan won a huge majority in 1984, he would have won the, the younger voters. Um, but yeah. Okay. Um, our next question comes from Barb Phillips. What are your thoughts on the Keystone Pipeline rule, ruling when Biden becomes president? Yeah, so, so I mean... I, I, I'm definitely, I mean, this is maybe a failure as an Albertan, but uh, less uh, uh, tuned in to the, the Keystone uh, debate. But certainly from the the things that I've uh, read, it's hard to say it will, if it will change the specific status quo right now. It's not like Keystone was, was making any great advancements uh, under Trump. So, I mean, it will, it will definitely uh, cause more, um, more uncertainty, at least for the, the Keystone pipeline. Uh, going forward. But I mean, overall, there, there's sort of uh, other interesting arguments about the specific oil and gas in U.S. domestic politics. Like one of the big competitors that, one of the big problems that Alberta has been facing, Canada has been facing, is increased uh, oil production domestically in the U.S. So if uh, if Biden is less uh, enthusiastic to, to pursue that, then it could at least increase the, the world price of oil a little bit, which might be uh, potentially an advantage for for Alberta's economy as well. Okay, our next speaker is Laurie Schultz. Our next questioner is Laurie Schultz. Um, 
and she has two questions and uh, so I'll just read them both out. With, sure. Tr with Trump's recent firing and threat to fire the directors of the FBI and CIA, can you comment on the implications for the security of the US? And then the following question, what long-term damage could Trump do between now and January? Oh yeah, no, I mean, so it's, uh... Uh, who was the other guy who was fired yesterday as well? One of the directors of, of, of cybersecurity or something. Um, yeah, def definitely in, in this period, uh, which sometimes they'll call like uh, the lame duck period um, after the election, but before you sort of are, <laughs> are booted out. Um, he definitely could could do all sorts of things, all, cause all sorts of damage before um, before January 20th. Like, I mean, I, I've joked with people that... Uh, they should make sure to check all the the furniture in the Lincoln bedroom that he hasn't taken that. Uh, but I mean, the more serious damage w would be like firing senior officials uh, and replacing them with uh, Trump officials, which is not to say that they would stay in those jobs necessarily in the long term. But it would mean that, that Biden would have to go through the the practice of then firing all these people and then replacing them. And it's, you know, if you've ever worked in a workplace where you've had lots of turnover um, of senior management, it's, it's chaotic and definitely introducing six or 10 or 12 months of chaos would be, would be incredibly damaging. Whether it would have direct security implications, I guess I'm, I'm not as sure, but it would definitely have very serious administrative um, implications uh, for the U.S. going forward. There was an interesting quote from an anonymous Trump official, so you never know who these people are, but an anonymous Trump official who said it seemed, he, he was concerned that it seems like some of their approaches in the last few weeks were to basically make it as difficult as possible for Biden to uh, transition to power. Even if they just sort of vacate the premises on the, on, on the correct day at the right time, they're not going to make it easy for, uh, they're, they're actually going to go out of their way to make it difficult uh, for Biden to, to do anything significant in the first few months other than tidying up, uh, tidying up some of the mess. Boy. Um, yeah. Our next question comes from Carol Camillo. Can you say how much Biden's choice of Harris as VP contributed to Biden's campaign and win? Yeah, so I mean, there's a couple of different um, different ways to think about that. So I mean, in 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 sort of the aggregate, like over over a long period of time, VP choices tend not to influence people's vote all that much. Essentially, the best VP that like if you're ever running for president, and I have some advice for you, mm -hmm. it would be just pick someone who people won't notice that much. Like they shouldn't be. If they're really good, it won't help you too much. But if they're bad, then it will hurt you. So sort of picking a neutral to good one is is good. And certainly Kamala Harris did her job of not being a, um, not being a detraction to the, the Biden ticket. Whether or not she inspired um, extra votes um, for the campaign, it, 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 there's not a lot of evidence. So, I mean, one, one uh, thought that some people had at least was could she, a big difference between 2016 and 20, 2008 and 12 was uh, African-American turnout, much higher under Obama than, than for Clinton. So there was some thought that perhaps she could she would drive that back up. It doesn't seem like it's at least recovered to the 2008 and 12 levels. So whether or not she had that effect, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to say. But at the very least, just presenting herself as a, as a plausible uh, second in command um, is 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 the only thing that you have to do, and I think I think uh, she did do that because I mean 
one of the complaints that people have who are vice president is that it's not actually a very good job. Uh, like it, it pays fine, but you don't have any specific responsibilities or powers other than like you're president of the Senate, which doesn't really come up too much unless it's a tied vote. It's not. It's basically not a very good job. You're just sort of waiting around just in case something happens uh, to the president. And and I think like it doesn't bring a lot to the ticket. Sarah Palin, though, in 2008, there was some thought that she might have dragged down McCain because McCain was this moderate figure who might have attracted certain types of voters who would be turned off by Sarah Palin's more kind of maverick uh, approach. So basically, just be neutral, and you're you're a good VP candidate. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Um, speculation is that Trump and the Republican Party launched their, quote, voter fraud fundraiser just to squeeze a few more millions out of their base to pay off an election campaign shortfall of dollars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's probably not the only reason why they did this, but um, the most interesting thing about those fundraising emails was, uh, I forget the exact amount, but it said, if you donate under $8,000, I think it was, it will go just directly to the Trump campaign to pay off their their debts. And if you donate over $8,000, then um, then it will go to 50-50 between the campaign and and paying off uh, and, and uh, doing these voter fraud uh, um, investigations or whatever they're doing. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, probably not the only reason. I do think that there's some desire amongst some of the senior Republicans to basically cause distrust among the public in the, in the, uh, in the process, which, which again does keep me up, uh, keep me up at night. But uh, one of the advantages of doing these campaigns is they can pay off some of their, their debts. Cause they were really, a really interesting dynamic that, I mean, it was reported on, but I think maybe we didn't focus on enough in general was how much more money the Democrats were able to raise this time than the Republicans. Usually it's pretty close. If anything, the Republicans sometimes have an advantage, except under Obama, who was really good at this. But it was like incredibly large uh, gap between how much the Democrats and the Republicans were able to raise, but probably not as much of a gap in terms of how much they spent. So the, the, so the Republicans will, will have some fundraising to, to do to, to, to get back uh, sort of on, in, in the black, I guess, in their, in their books. Okay, we're going back to that age slide and sure. uh, Leona Jacobs, who asked the previous question, says, okay, seeing the chart, which I've put back up, I've put mm. that slide back up, it was about the jump in the numbers between 2016 and 2020, mm. uh, the jump between elections for, for Trump. So her initial question was, what do you, uh, why do you think that jump is? Well, yeah, so, I mean, a, a few points to make. Like, uh, one, as much as it seems like Trump was less popular this time because he lost than the election where he won in 2016, actually not the case. Like, he will have increased his vote share by a little bit and increased his vote count by a lot. So the jump in voter turnout is not is definitely not just a... Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were inspiring or that Donald Trump was was terrifying. It was also that Donald Trump was inspiring to a lot of people who didn't vote in 2016. So who are they? So some of them would be young people, like they weren't eligible to vote. Some of them would be new, new Americans who weren't eligible to vote. But most of them, honestly, would have been people who didn't vote in 2016. But then they liked what they saw between 2016 and 2020 and then turned out to vote uh, for Trump for the first time at least in two elections, um, to vote for him anew. So I would say what it does say is 
A, voters were inspired to vote in this vote, but it wasn't just a pro-Biden or anti-Trump thing. It was also a pro-Trump thing. So, so I mean, um, I would say that it's just really, like, they, the polarization is inspiring enough now for both sides that they're both incredibly motivated to vote. And again, like, I can't emphasize enough, like, it's the highest voter turnout since 1900, at least as a percentage uh, of eligible voters. So it's really an unusual situation to have... Uh, two candidates inspiring enough to get out. I mean, they they probably get 155, 156, 157 million voters to come out. It's, it's a, in some ways, well, in lots of ways, incredible in all meanings of the word. Yeah. Okay, our next question comes from Henning Mundell. Oh, actually, no, sorry, I skipped one. Laurie Schultz, can you comment on how the militias, in brackets, or groups there, thereof, that Trump told to stand down and stand by may behave in the next four years. Oh yeah, um, yeah I, I would say, I would say it's too hard to make like a very certain um, declaration of what will happen. I mean, certainly, if Trump goes through with his plan, it seems to be happening of like continuing the Donald Trump movement of Americans. Like, like certainly, these groups could be inspired to um to to continue their activities but i mean at the same time because they're maybe less well organized in a formal group they often just fall apart as well for various reasons like you, you see that just as commonly so it's a really it's a big um a big unknown which is both potentially fine but also potentially quite bad but i would say like the worst the worst first thing and more likely thing is trump just for four years campaigning essentially still campaigning uh as if he had won and just sowing distrust in the process because i mean a really centrally important aspect of elections is that people uh trust the process and if, if, if he makes people not trust the process then people either don't vote or they don't accept the results and it, it leads to all sorts of only bad things so uh, so hopefully that doesn't happen but uh, <laughs> You never know. <laughs> okay, Henning Mandel. Whereas in Canada we had the right to vote enshrined in the Constitution, it appears not to be the case in the U.S. Do you think, as president, Biden would try to ratify this? Yeah, I mean, the, it's a, the, this is a good question. Like in, in terms of some of the bigger changes, whether whether it's this or some other things. Uh, the changing the constitution in the U.S. is a very difficult process. It requires consent from, I forget the exact percentage, but a large percentage of the state legislatures and, and, and then Congress. And then like, it, it takes a while. There was a, a, a recent constitutional, recent-ish constitutional amendment which took like 250 years to pass or something. Like so some long amount of time, 210 years. Um, so it would not, like, like none, no, no change that requires a constitutional amendment would be uh, very fast uh, at this point, and I think just the increased polarization would lead to uh, to Republicans essentially opposing anything that that the Democrats proposed for for a constitutional amendment. So, next question comes from Knut uh, Peterson. Are you surprised that so many Republicans are supporting Trump in his quest to contest the election results? And do you think they ultimately will? Throw him under the bus. <laughs> yeah, so, so I mean, it's a, it's a couple of things there at once. I think, like, so partisanship, partisan identification, like when you when you 
adopt the identity of someone who belongs and is a passionate supporter of a party can really change a lot of what you think. I mean, the best example is is Lindsey Graham, the senator from, from South Carolina, who in 2016 was very anti-Trump. I mean, like, as anti-Trump as any of the Democrats would be. But then now he's essentially Trump's biggest fan, uh... And, and and loves him more than anything. So I think I think that um, in in lots of ways it's not a surprise that the like you can only kind of splinter off people like Mitt Romney, who's not even necessarily a moderate so much. Like he's a he's a pretty strong conservative, but it's not just one spectrum here. Like being a conservative doesn't mean that you're also a Trumpist. It's not like Trumpism is a specifically only conservative philosophy. Like it's its own sort of uh, mystery. Um, mystery sauce uh, there that isn't just conservatism um but will they throw him under the bus yeah like, like one of the things that you see a little bit happening now but it's not very much yet is some trump supporters who were maybe otherwise not necessarily aligned with him are saying things like i recognize that biden has won the election um but as soon as he's sort of out of power, I think I think he will get some more people doing this. But again, like the 2024 Republican nomination will be a battle for the soul of the Republican Party. Uh, will it be a return to kind of, you know, conservatism as, as normally understood? Or will it be a continuation of sort of this sort of populist, nationalist uh, Trump uh, style approach, whether with specifically him or not? So, I mean, you'll get some people who throw him under the bus, but... Uh, uh, he'll still have some fans. And I think part of that comes from Trump's demonstrated power in Republican nomination contests. Like a lot of people who he personally endorsed ended up defeating even relatively popular incumbents in certain races. So they'll even just be scared of the power of Trump to say, oh, you were the the congressman from this district. I endorse your opponent who likes me better. That they'll, they'll even be like a, an act of self-preservation will uh, um, keep them aligned with Trump. Right, um, Laurie Schultz, it would appear, in quotes, democracy is taking a hit in the last four years. Can you comment on how the U.S. voters see this state of democracy? Well, yeah, <laughs> so, so I, don't, I don't know if I've seen too much um, polling evidence of what they think of democracy in general, but just this poll that I talked about at the, the very end of the, the huge changes just in the last two weeks of voters um, about whether or not they think elections are free and fair. Like that, the fact that that's aligned with a specific party, i.e. the Democrats now that they won, think that it was free and fair, and Republicans now that they lost think that it's not free and fair, uh, is, is really a, a, cons a concern as an observer of, of democracy. Like you want people to to buy into the process. It's why, it's why um, like, like, if you think of even the the voting machines thing, that story that Trump is pushing right now, it's this Canadian, this evil Canadian company has uh, has come to interfere with our elections. Um, but like, why do you do that? It's not because you necessarily think that this was what happened. Is that because it's a, it's like an electronic machine that counts the ballots and uses like memory sticks to transfer the results? You can kind of cast doubt on the process, and I think. Any time you do that from any party's side, it's it's bad. Like if you think something is wrong, sure, challenge it, say that the process is wrong, come up with a plan to fix it. 
but but just kind of casting these generic aspersions on the system really damages people's trust in the system, which really damages. Then if you think, oh, it's not free and fair, why bother having an election? Why not just take over the government in some other way? Uh, because starts to become uh, a possible thought in your mind. So I mean, it's, uh, again, I can't. <laughs> it is the thing that will keep me up. Hmm. Um, Paul, we have two more questions, but we're right sure. at one o'clock. Yeah. Okay. Um, Laurie Schultz, what are your thoughts on how voters considered Trump's COVID-19 response to vote for or against Trump? Yeah, so I mean, um, I'm going to pull up a thing here that I, so I can tell you the exact numbers. There were like, there were a lot of people who felt like um, Trump's, uh, who, who was better to handle the coronavirus pandemic? This is a question that they asked. 53% said Biden, 43% said Trump. So it's not, so like there, there would be, um, there were a lot of people who, who thought either candidate was actually the correct way to do it. And I mean, unsurpri unsurprisingly, the people who thought Biden, 92% of them voted for Biden. The people who thought Trump, 95% of them voted for Trump. So I mean, I would say like, as much as COVID seems like the big issue of, of the campaign in lots of ways it, it, it was it wasn't like people just thought oh trump is doing badly therefore we'll vote for biden no lot, lots of people thought that that trump was uh, was doing the right thing and i mean a, a similar question they asked is wearing a face mask in public more of a personal choice or public health responsibility uh people who said personal choice were more likely to vote for trump people who said it was a public health responsibility more more likely to vote for biden so i mean there's, there's a big appetite for the kind of laissez-faire um, approaches of uh, pandemic management. Um, okay. Um, Terry Shillington, I am continually amazed at the support Trump receives from older women. It seems no policy-based, it seems not policy-based, but perhaps a cult of personality. Comments, please. Yeah, so, so, so I guess first part, definitely large numbers of voters like majority it's hard to say from election to election are not driven by policy considerations some people are definitely it's a it's a type of voter but voting is also like a it's a cultural activity where you think oh i i see my vision for america kind of aligning with this generic bag of things that trump or biden is offering so so like really never think of voters as people who are considering all the policies that the candidates are offering and thinking about how that would affect them and their families and their communities and, and the country as a whole. Um, that is part of it. It's part. It's one part of a 20-part uh, machine where people uh, come up with an allegiance. Like, it's more just about personal identity that, that Trump, like Trump said, I'm speaking for the for the forgotten man. This was a big theme in 2016. People say, oh, I, I feel like I'm a forgotten man. So I will vote for Trump. Like it, it can often just be as sort of cultural and instinctive as that. And and there would be some people who, as much as it amazes me, find Trump's personality appealing. Um, so like they would say, oh yeah, I, I like the fact that he's like a strong authoritarian figure, and that's what this country needs. And they they would be drawn to that. So it's really not a policy calculation that they're making. We have um, some thank you comments, but there's another comment just come in by um, Reverend Florence. Um, Giuliano and Powell just destroyed the leftist media narrative in the last hour, dot, dot, dot. Better do some brushing up on the issue, dot, dot, dot. Looks like Trump's chances just got a lot better. 
Well, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be curious to see what, uh, uh, what has happened. But uh. yeah. So then we have, uh, and then we have um, Cliff Peterson. Thank you, Laurie Schultz. Thank you, Beth Mundell. Thank you very much. Um, great analysis of this complex issue. Um, many thanks for supporting SACPA from Knud and thank you also for myself and on behalf of SACPA. Um, and before we end the session, do you have one final uh, take-home message? Well, I mean, first I'd say thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to, to, to speak to SACPA. It's always nice to think about politics together. But if there, if there is a take-home message, I guess, from what the U.S. election result has said is that voters in the U.S. were highly motivated uh, to turn out, that it wasn't a lot about huge shifts from 2016, so much as a lot of these smaller uh, shifts among among voter groups and, um, um, and it is not a return to the Obama coalition. It's actually a, a newer kind of politics is emerging. It'll be interesting just to see how well the kind of Biden coalition and then Trump coalition holds up in, in 2024. Lovely. Um, thank you everybody for tuning in. Um, we hope to see you next week where we have Canada-China relationships. Can this relationship be safe with Dr. Gordon Holden? Um, so we look forward to seeing you all next week and thanks for tuning in.